Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The Bungalow first time I received the flyer, I didn't put any stock in it. It seemed no different than the million other invitations to timeshare seminars I've thrown away through the years. It was printed on shiny cardstock and featured a picture of palm fronds hanging over an idyllic white sand beach. You've won a free stay in one of our lavish beachside bungalows, it said. Sure I did, I thought for the brief second that I glanced at it before dropping it in the can with the other junk mail. But a week later, when I scooped the same flyer out of my mailbox yet again, I began to grow frustrated. As an insurance adjuster, a big part of my job is weeding out scams. And when you've spent decades determining the validity of claims, you grow cynical towards things that seem too good to be true. Because they always are. I pulled out my cell phone and dialed the number printed on the flyer. After two rings... A woman answered the phone in an enthusiastic but slightly unnerving voice. Malamar Shores, spawn or treat, she said. Look, I told her, I've been getting your flyers, and I don't know what the catch is, whether I have to attend some seminar or something, but I'm not interested. Mr. Matheson, she said without skipping a beat, you don't need to attend a seminar. Your stay here is free, no strings attached. My face scrunched up into a skeptical frown. How do you know my name? I asked, a hint of agitation bleeding into my words. I'm sorry, she said candidly. You are Spalding Matheson, right? Yes, I confided. I see. Well, it says here in our system that your phone number was selected for an all-expenses-paid stay in one of our bungalows. We sent the flyers to the address associated with that number. There was a few seconds of silence over the line while I considered the offer. You can understand why I'd be skeptical, right? These type of things are never free. Not really. 
Of course, Mr. Matheson, she laughed. Our marketing team did warn us that the raffle winners might be skeptical. But I assure you there's no funny business here. What you see is what you get. If you'd like a free weekend away in one of our beachside bungalows, the offer stands. Or, if you're not interested, that's fine too. Her voice had a tone of impenetrable cheer, that signature forced happiness you always hear from customer service representatives. Hmm, I see, I mumbled, squinting at the flyer as it lay on my kitchen counter. And how long does the offer stand? You have until the end of the month, she replied. If you don't accept by then, the offer gets passed on to the runner-up. In the days that followed, I began to take the idea more seriously. I could use a weekend away, I told myself. I've earned it. And besides, what did I have to lose? But the real push came when I brought the idea up to my neighbor, Clay, a few days later. I'd known Clay for years, through some of the best times in my life, and some of the worst as well. We were talking over a glass of wine, listening to the patter of rain, and he brought up something that I hadn't considered. Chelsea would have wanted you to go, he said. I didn't reply at first, but when I let the words sink in, I realized he had a point. Towards the end, when things were getting bad, I'd canceled countless camping trips and ski trips so I could stay home and care for her. And when nothing else could be done for her but to keep her comfortable, when the doctors stopped prescribing anything to treat her and gave her only morphine instead, it was almost like she could see the end coming. I was sitting at her bedside one night as she dipped in and out of consciousness, a thin sheen of sweat glimmering on her forehead, and she turned to me. When this is all over, she said in a faint, barely there voice, I want you to go somewhere nice. I want you to have a good time and forget about all this pain. I had promised her that I would, but since she passed, I've never even considered taking a vacation. It never felt right. It seemed somehow wrong for me to go gallivanting around enjoying my life when hers had been so cruelly robbed after only 47 years. I remember a time when 47 years seemed like an eternity, when you're young and certain you'll live forever. But when you see someone take their last breath at 47, especially someone as kind and selfless as Chelsea, you realize what the word tragedy truly means. When I arrived at Malamar Shores, it was surprisingly cool for mid-September. The gentle ocean breeze wafting in off the waves, and the late afternoon light christening the leaves of scattered trees. I wheeled my bag into the lobby, a wide, airy room that smelled of salt and eucalyptus. The fixtures were modern, and the walls were adorned with intricate tropical paintings. A man in a tuxedo was seated at a grand piano in the corner, playing a sonata that sounded vaguely like Chopin. Through the open back doors, I could see a dozen small bungalows lining the sandy ocean shore, each with their own beachfront patio nestled amongst tall stalks of bamboo. If she could have lived to see this, I thought. If she only could have lived to see this. The concierge took my information with a pleasant nod. She had a wide, shining smile, which was contrasted by her seemingly distant eyes. It seemed, for a moment, like there was something hiding behind her gleeful face. But ultimately, I decided it must be part and parcel with the rigors of customer service work. 
I'd probably bear a distant look in my eyes, too, if I had to smile at hotel guests all day. After signing in and leaving a card number for incidentals, she handed me my room key and pointed me in the direction of my bungalow. As I walked across the courtyard to it, the calm ocean breeze wafted in off the shore, casting cool comfort across my exposed skin. I inhaled deeply, relishing in the moment. But then the silence was broken by what sounded like a scream, a quick, guttural cry, betraying an emotion that could have only been pain. I froze in my steps and looked around, but could see nothing out of order. Families splashed in the waves below me. Guests sat tanning and sipping on drinks by the pool. Nobody looked even remotely concerned by the scream. I thought, in fact, that I must have been the only one that had even heard it. Shrugging it off with the resignation that it must have been a child playing, I resumed my walk to my bungalow. Once inside, I was greeted by a stunning floor plan. A modern kitchenette, lavish living room, and a beautiful bedroom with a plush, king-size four-post bed. The bathroom was fitted with a walk-in shower and a deep jacuzzi tub, complete with jets and mood lighting. For a moment, I just stood in awe, taking in the space and the strange series of events that had led me there. Exhausted from having spent the better half of the day navigating the winding coastal roads that led to the resort, I retreated to the bedroom where I put on a pair of sweatpants and lay in bed, watching the blood-red sun steadily slip behind the waves. Tired as I was, though, sleep wouldn't come. Even as the hours ticked past midnight and into the quiet early morning, I was met, instead, by my old friend, Insomnia, who always arrived to commandeer my nights into restless storms of anxiety. I focused on the sounds of the waves, rolling softly up the beach, but the steady cadence of the water did little to bring me closer to slumber. Eventually, I rose and tottered towards the bathroom to retrieve a sleeping pill from my toiletry kit. But as I stepped from the hallway to the cold tile floor of the bathroom, I froze. There, amid the shower and the elegant bathroom fixtures, was a vaguely human figure, skinny and contorted as it lurked soundlessly in the corner of the room. It seemed to be facing me, unmoving with its imposing stature. I commanded my voice to rise, to interrogate the trespasser, but no words would come. I just stood, paralyzed, a slight tremble in my knees, until finally I lifted a shaking hand to the switch and turned on the lights. It was only then, with fluorescent light cast upon the bathroom's shining porcelain features, that I realized the intruder was nothing more than a bathrobe that had been hung in the corner. Though, unlike most bathrobes that can be found in spas and hotel rooms for guests to use, this one was not white and fuzzy, but black and sleek, almost resembling a kimono. I snickered at my own foolishness as I trotted across the room to snag the pill from my bag. Before I returned to bed, I pulled the robe down. I was planning on placing it in the closet where it would have no chance of giving me a heart attack. But upon removing it from the wall where it hung, I realized that it was covering something up. There, on the wall, was a strange symbol, hastily etched into the drywall. It consisted of a deep slash through two concentric arcs, 
with a bold line underneath that was bisected by a smaller slit. In all, the symbol vaguely resembled the communist hammer and sickle, or perhaps what you'd imagine it to look like if there were an Egyptian hieroglyph depicting the modern umbrella. I was confused and slightly dismayed by its presence, but in the end, my intrigue was outweighed by my desire for sleep, so I shrugged it off, popped my sleeping pill, and returned to bed. The next day found me lazily pacing the grounds of Malamar Shores. After casting a few stones into the ocean, I returned to my room to get dressed for lunch. As I passed the bathroom on my way down the hall, something caught my eye. I stopped and was surprised to see that the symbol I'd seen the night before had been patched and painted over. I lightly dabbed my finger on it, and the fresh paint stuck to the tip of my finger. Something was imperceptibly off about it. Had the symbol been mere vandalism that housekeeping noticed and decided to quickly repair? Or did the symbol have some deeper meaning? I tried to shrug it off, but something about the episode lingered dimly in my head. Even as I arrived at the restaurant and was seated by a waitress with an unflinching smile, the bizarre symbol hung in my head like a cryptic message I couldn't make sense of. As I sat at my table out on the patio, waiting for my food to come, I thumbed absentmindedly at the stucco on the wall of the restaurant. I drew my hand back, surprised, as the paint flaked away and the stucco crumbled, leaving a small hole in the wall where I'd pricked at it. The bit of stucco left in my hand disintegrated and fell away like sand. I gaped at it in awe. Again, I pressed my finger into the wall, and again it crumbled away, offering almost no resistance, as if it were made of styrofoam. What the hell is going on? I wondered. What is this place? Suddenly, I was snapped out of my unease by the waitress, who set my food down in front of me, offering a bright smile before she turned and walked away. And while the symbol and the crumbling restaurant wall were strange, these matters were lost in the sounds of the crashing waves as I ate greedily from my plate and sipped from my beer. That night I found myself sleepless again, staring at the ceiling and listening to the tick of the clock on my nightstand as the seconds slipped by. As each minute passed, I felt no closer to sleep, closer only to the disappointment and frustration of another groggy, tired morning. Eventually I gave up on sleep, got dressed, and stepped outside. Chelsea hung in my head as I walked down towards the beach. The golden shimmer of her hair as we sat in the New England dunes those years ago. The way she hummed along every time the radio played a Bowie song. Her relentless enthusiasm and zest for life. And, inevitably, the bleak expression that fell across her face as the doctor read her diagnosis. It always ended up there when I thought about her. The subtle, disbelieving wrinkle in her cheeks. The gentle slope of her brow as her eyes grew distant. It was a painful thing to remember, but nevertheless, a memory that I couldn't stop myself from returning to, as if acknowledging it was some form of penance. But then, as I approached the waves, something pulled me out of my ruminations. Seated on the sand below me was a group of people, hunched with their heads bowed. They sat around a small fire. 
They were all quiet and unmoving, and the fire danced among them, casting uncanny shadows across the sand. I squatted where I stood, shrinking out of sight from them. I'm not sure why, but something about them unnerved me, some lurking suspicion that I shouldn't make my presence known to them. Squinting through the darkness, I was able to discern that they were all wearing robes, black robes, ones that looked all too similar to the one I'd seen hanging in my bathroom. Each had their hood pulled up over their head to obscure their faces, and their hands were buried deep in their pockets. I gawked at them, awe-stricken, waiting for something to happen, until the subtle chill of the situation beckoned me to return to my bungalow. As I slowly crept back up the beach, I shot worried glances over my shoulder every few paces, just to be sure I wasn't being followed. When the sun shone through my blinds in the morning, I jolted suddenly awake. For a brief moment, I was convinced that the ring of figures I'd seen on the beach the night before had been nothing more than a dream. But as the details of the night set in, and I remembered the eerie glow that the fire cast upon their robes, it became starkly evident to me that it had all really happened. What were they doing out there? I wondered to myself as I headed out of my room and went to the lobby for a cup of coffee. Were they guests here at the resort? Did they notice me watching them? The questions filled me with a subtle sense of panic, and I suddenly saw everyone around me in a new light. I no longer felt like I was surrounded by innocent vacationers, but by closet occultists, here at this bizarre location to perform secret rituals under the cover of night. As I walked out of the lobby, eyes drawn down to fix the lid on my cup, I clumsily bumped into someone, nearly dousing them with hot coffee. Shit, I muttered, feeling the sting of the searing liquid on my hand. I'm sorry. My eyes rose to meet hers, and I was instantly taken aback. The mere sight of her sucked the breath out of me, rendering me speechless for what felt like an eternity. How, I thought. How is this possible? Because there, before me, stood the spitting image of Chelsea. But not as I had known her in the end. Not as she had looked when the cancer had eaten everything. Eaten even the bright shimmer in her eyes that always accompanied her gracious smile. No. The woman that stood before me looked exactly as Chelsea had looked when she was young. The subtle dip in the bridge of her nose. The abrupt edge of her chin. Even the elegant bounce of her curly, blonde hair. It was her. Impossibly her. But she must have noticed me staring, because after a few seconds she smiled awkwardly and exuded a kind of stinted laugh. Are you okay? she asked, frowning slightly. Yes, I stammered, thank you. I just... It's the coffee. It burned me, kind of. Kind of shocked me. Of course, she said, shaking her head. She pulled a napkin out of her purse and dabbed it on my hand carefully. I don't know what you're doing this afternoon, but I'm planning on heading down to the beach if you want to tag along. I was somewhat confused. The invitation took me by surprise. It was so upfront. But at the same time, standing there and gazing at the woman who bore such a striking resemblance to my dead wife made me feel transfixed intoxicated by her. I found myself inexplicably drawn to her. Absolutely, I said, perhaps a little too enthusiastically. 
I walked back to my bungalow with a renewed zest, a rare sense of excitement bubbling up to the surface. My giddy stride was interrupted only by the realization that I'd forgotten to ask the woman's name. In my mind, she was already a kind of proxy for Chelsea, so much so that the idea of her having any other name seemed almost absurd. After washing up and changing into my swim trunks, I headed down to the beach. The sand was cool against my feet, the salty breeze wafting against my exposed skin. I rolled out my towel and laid it on the ground. Then I sat and began to thumb through Don DeLillo's Underworld, my eyes rising from the page every few sentences to survey the beach in search of her, the doppelganger, the Chelsea proxy. When my watch ticked past noon, she had still not arrived. I began to worry for a few seconds, that I had been set up, that the woman had nefarious intentions, that she somehow knew about my dead wife and sought to take advantage of me. But no, that was ridiculous. What are you talking about? I scoffed silently. And before my mind could concoct any more ludicrous ideas, she appeared. I didn't see her approach. She just materialized before me like some kind of mythical familiar. She greeted me with a smile and I scooted over, freeing up some towel space for her. I'm sorry about before, I said. My manners must have gotten away from me. I never got your name. Mine's Spalding. Spalding Matheson. I'm here on... Well, I don't exactly know what. I won some kind of prize. Some kind of raffle. And they gave me a free stay in one of their bungalows. I pointed up the beach in the general direction of my room. She gave a coy, knowing smile. I don't know exactly what emotion it betrayed, only that it made me momentarily uncomfortable. My name is Dez, she said. I reached out a hand to shake hers. Is that short for something? She smiled again, averting her eyes away from mine. It's short for Desir, she said. I basked in her smile, letting it take me back to my young life with Chelsea, when joy was abundant and everything in the world seemed possible for us. Desir, I said quietly. Is that Egyptian? Israeli? She snickered and shook her head. It's an old name, she said simply. Older than nations. I marveled at this for a moment, watching the blonde curls of her hair dance in the breeze. Are you here on vacation? I asked. She seemed to consider my question, squinting as she looked out at the shimmering shore break. Something like that, she said finally, her face turning back to meet mine. Soon I will leave here. It may be for a short time, or it may be for a long time. But I will return. I always do. She drew up a handful of sand and clenched her fist around it, watching the grain slowly slip between her fingers. This place is special, she said. It always provides for me. I have been coming here for as long as I can remember, and I will always come back. It's a nice place, I said, raising my head and watching the wind jostle the palm fronds above us. When I lowered my gaze back down to Dez, something caught my eye. It was a pendant with a symbol on it, hanging from a slim gold chain around her neck. For the brief moment that I glimpsed it, it looked strangely familiar, 
like the symbol I'd seen etched into the bathroom wall. When she noticed me looking at it, she subtly swiped it away, slipping it back behind the collar of her shirt. I wanted to ask her about it, but something told me not to. Can I tell you something? I said instead. It might sound weird. She nodded and I went on. It's nice to sit here with you. You remind me of someone. Someone I lost. A few moments elapsed while I gathered myself, unsure whether this disclosure was appropriate. She was my wife. She died of cancer. Des laid her hand softly upon mine. May the earth rest lightly upon her, she said gently. A chill ran through me as the words escaped her mouth. I drew my hand away in shock. I'm sorry, she said. Was that inappropriate to say? No, it's fine, I said, shaking my head in an approximation of an apology. My mind traveled back to Our Lady of Hope Cemetery, to the plot where Chelsea was buried. She'd never been religious, so I thought it only suitable to have a secular epitaph etched into her gravestone. I settled on C.T.B. Terra Levi, a Latin inscription used in Roman times, one that translates roughly to, May the earth rest lightly upon you. How could Des have known that, I wondered. Where had those words come from? As we sat and continued talking, I got the distinct feeling that I did not want to know more about Des. Her cryptic answers to my questions, that odd sense of knowing that seemed to emanate from her words, it all added up to an uncertain instinct that I carried, more of a feeling than a thought, which I was unable to describe by the corrosive sensation it left in my gut. Nevertheless, there was something enigmatic about her, something intoxicating. So when she asked me to meet her on the beach again at nine o'clock that night, I found myself unable to decline. I was entranced by her, and whatever apparent influence she had on me, be it nefarious or otherwise, was somehow beyond my control. As we parted ways on the beach, I headed back to my bungalow for lunch before walking in the direction of a lighthouse I could see about half a mile up the shore. Its robust cylindrical shape jutted out among the rocks, standing stout and monolithic above the waves. I'm not sure what it was that drew me to the structure, but something about it beckoned to me. When I arrived at the lighthouse, I was surprised to find a small museum inside. It was comprised of local artifacts and wildlife displays, fossils of indigenous animals and plant species, items of historical significance and tools used by native tribes that once roamed these shores. While surveying the massive skeleton of a walrus, its ivory tusks gleaming in the fluorescent light, I noticed something peculiar. Sitting in a glass case among arrowheads in stone bowls was a large dagger, carved meticulously from the bone of some enormous animal. A closer look revealed something that sent a chill shuddering across my skin. On the handle of the blade, a small symbol was carved. It was vague, but I could see clearly that it was the same pattern that had been in my bathroom and on the pendant worn by Des. My mouth hanging agape, I felt the affirmation of a lurking fear that had been steadily accumulating since I first arrived at Malamar Shores. Something is off with this place, I thought, though the exact sensation was difficult to put into words.
With a wave, I got the attention of the museum attendant, a short, older woman with dark eyes and curly brown hair. This knife, I said, gesturing to the one in the case. It has a symbol carved into it. Do you know what it means? The attendant smiled and squinted her eyes, as if the dagger represented something of an enigma to her. It's been studied by a handful of anthropologists and archaeologists, she said. But no, I don't think anyone's ever been able to come up with a definitive explanation for it. Who made it, I asked. A native tribe? This time she almost chuckled. Nobody's been able to figure that out either. The craftsmanship doesn't match any of the native artifacts, and it appears to be much older than the tribes that lived here. The bone it's carved out of isn't even local. It comes from a prehistoric horse called a Hyperion. They were common in North America during the Pleistocene era, but none of their fossils have ever been found within, oh, about a thousand miles of here. I had no idea what to say. I just gazed at the dagger, perplexed. The attendant sighed. Sometimes it seems like there's a whole lot more to our history than we know, she said before returning to her kiosk to assist a family looking for directions. When I got back to my bungalow, I began to pack my things. I didn't know what was going on at Malamar Shores. I only knew that I couldn't stay another night. A deep sense of foreboding had clung to me since my return from the lighthouse, and as I looked back at the odd things I'd experienced since arriving there, I couldn't help but feel like there was something wicked at play, that I was somehow in danger. With my bags packed and set by the door, I took one last look at my watch before leaving. 8.57 With my acknowledgement of the time came a strange sensation, a bizarre feeling that fell over me, squeezing my will out of my being and replacing it with a sensibility that seemed almost automated, as if, somehow, I no longer had agency. I felt like I was watching the world through someone else's eyes as I stepped out of the back door of my bungalow and began striding down towards the beach. A chilly offshore breeze lilted the trees, and the reflections of the pale moon danced across the waves. I didn't question what I was doing. I felt oddly unable to. While the queer sense of calm was forced over me, dulling my senses to a minute level of awareness. The clock struck nine just as my feet touched the cool sand of the beach. But as I looked around, I could see that I was alone. The sand gleamed white in the glow of the moon, its soft texture making it look almost like freshly fallen snow. A sudden movement drew my eyes to the shallow cliffs overlooking the beach. Something was breaching the horizon. It was a figure, shrouded in a dark robe. As I watched, four more cloaked figures emerged, each of them carrying torches. As they descended the cliffs and began walking towards me, I could see one of them unsheath a long, ivory dagger and bear it before them. They took slow, strident steps, the spindly legs that carried them seeming uncannily long for a human. I began to retreat, backing away and turning to face the waves. As I listened to the crash of the approaching surf, I could hear something else. It was a voice, angelic in its pitch. Chelsea, I thought. Join me, the voice said, 
its harmonic tone beginning to slip, giving way to something that sounded deep and perverse, a heinous appropriation of Chelsea's voice. I looked back over my shoulder and could see now that the road figures were only a few paces away. Join me, said the thing beneath the waves that was trying to sound like Chelsea. Join me. As I staggered into the water, salty and cold against my skin, I closed my eyes. C. T. B. Terra Levy, I thought to myself as the first wave crashed over my head. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.